welcome back to Bubble Trouble. We're the ever-critical independent analyst Richard Kramer, that's hip, and myself, the economist, author, and music geek, and unrelenting statistics nerd, Will Page. If there's a bubble that burst, we picked it first. We are the biggest pricks in town, and will continue to do so in 2024. That doesn't quite sound like Richard. Anyway, this week we get into portfolio theory, or the lack of. As for many of us, we're just rushing into big tech. Not just big tech, but big US tech, with willful ignorance of everything else Wall Street has to offer. As the rule seems to be, go with the big boys and forget the rest. Is that irrational? Is that illogical? Or is that a shrewd way of doing business? That's what I want to get into this week on Bubble Trouble. More in a moment. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, Richard. Welcome back as we kick into the second month of 2024. It has flown by, Will. Can you believe that? What happened to 23, 22, and 21? I think the pandemic just throws all sense of timing and calendars out the window. But we're here, we're in February, and we've had a bunch of earnings calls, and a bunch of those earnings calls have been big US tech, and that's where I want to take this week's conversation, sir. I wanted to chalk off the first month of 24 by reminding myself of something Scott Galloway once said, which is, I only have ever held four stacks. That is Amazon, Apple, Google, and Microsoft. And it's done me just fine. I always jumped out at me as, is he boasting, gloating, being irrational, stupid, or is that a really shrewd thing to do? I mean, there's a wealth of financial advice and wizardry out there. You have spent 30 good years exposing it for what it is, but should you just load up on that big US tech and go do the gardening? It's coming up to spring now. So I wanted to get into that. And the way I want to get into it is to do three icebreakers. Firstly, I want to discuss with you how we're going to go over this subject, because you as an independent analyst have things you can say and can't say. Then I want to clarify who we're actually talking about. Is it the big four? Is it the magnificent seven? Let's invent a new acronym if we can. And then thirdly, I want to talk about what it is we're actually discussing here, which is a concentration of wealth, a long tail effect. But let's just start at the beginning. How should we approach this subject, given we're talking about big US tech companies for the next 30, 40 minutes? You're an independent analysis, things you can and can't say. Just give me the guardrails of how you want to have this conversation. Well, I spend my life looking at these sort of companies, some in more detail than others, and some of them followed by my colleagues. But the one thing I can't do on this podcast is give people investment advice. So for that, I would back into Warren Buffett's classic maxims about invest in things. Do some of your own research. Don't just take what you hear on CNBC or from Wall Street analysts or from myself for granted, take your own reality check soundings of what you hear 
and invest with some strategy in mind. Instead of blindly buying something because your friend told you it was a great idea, you don't really want to do that. So I cannot dispense any professional investment advice. I can only talk about what we observe broadly in the market. And you can talk about historical price movements because those are a matter of record. And as long as we're not in the post-truth yeah. era, facts are still quantitative facts. <laughs> And just for our audience's benefit, Richard can't give you investment advice. I can, which is listen to what I say and just do the yeah. fucking opposite. Okay. Okay. Now, who are we going to be discussing when we discuss US big tech? Scott Galloway, friend of the show, wonderful podcaster and author. He talks about the four horsemen, the big four. Now, that is then Apple, Google, Microsoft, and Amazon. So that's, an, let me just, I'm going to go through the actions here. That's an AGMA, AGMA. Do you keep it at four or do you expand so that list? The market has, for years and decades, really come up with a short list of companies that represented the important stocks to watch, whether it was the index like the Dow 30 or the S&P 500, whether it was the Nifty 50 back in the 70s and 80s, the Tron stocks the when Nifty they first started 50, to have computer please. stocks. And just before the tech bubble burst, there were the quote unquote four horsemen. And one of those, by the way, was a company called Research in Motion, the makers of the BlackBerry. Now, when was the last time you saw <laughs> someone with a BlackBerry? And what you had when you started to more recently to have big tech, which was really Google, Apple, Microsoft, Meta, and Amazon, you recently had them joined by two other companies who achieved enormously high market values approaching a trillion dollars, which was Meta, or sorry, NVIDIA and Tesla. Now, just to show you, like BlackBerry, one of the four horsemen in the last tech bubble, nothing lasts forever. So far, year to date, while Meta and NVIDIA stocks are up 30 and 40% respectively, Tesla is down 28%. So nothing lasts forever. That's what I'm trying to say. And that the market will always look to personify what's going on broadly with a small group of stocks. Sometimes that's energy stocks. Sometimes that's pharmaceutical stocks. But very often, because they've played such an outsized role in our lives, it's tech stocks. And in that list, you have Tesla, but you don't have Netflix. You want to just explain why they well, don't make the look, list? Well, Netflix is several hundreds of billions of dollars of market cap, two or 300 billion in that range. Tesla and NVIDIA, as I said, got up to billion dollar or trillion dollar, sorry, market caps in the peak. So, so it is really about count the really zeros, the, count the, the zeros, sc the, the scale of these companies and where they get to. Plus, the one thing about the five big tech companies, Google, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon and Meta, almost everyone who's involved in the market and billions of people worldwide have a relationship with these five companies almost daily. You yeah. use a Google for searching. Apple is the, has the largest market share of the U.S. smartphone market. Microsoft is ubiquitous in the enterprise. Amazon is by far the largest e-commerce player in the market. And Meta is has 3.3 billion users in its community between WhatsApp, Blue Facebook, and Instagram. So these are companies that people engage with every day. You almost can't avoid them. And when you look at the interbrand survey of the top five or 10 brands in the world, and they've been running it for 20, 30 years, these five are always in the top 10. So they are companies that uh, yeah. whatever you think of Tesla or however likely you are to buy an electric vehicle, it certainly doesn't 
impact emerging markets the way these big five tech companies do. Whatever you know about NVIDIA, and it's really a you're not likely as a consumer to buy NVIDIA products because they're largely making very expensive semiconductors that go into data centers. So it's that the relationship of the individual, and remember, the market is made up of a huge pool of retail investors who are actually investing on their own or buying funds that invest in these companies. It's the, engage, the everyday engagement with these big five companies that bring them to everybody's attention. Now, lastly, before we get into the weeds of this topic, I do want to just discuss this concept of long yeah. tail, which for our listeners who may be a little bit unwise to this, think about a bookshop. You have certain books at the front, a few big titles, you stack them high, you sell them cheap. A small number of titles makes up a large amount of sales. Therefore, you have a long tail of niche titles, which make up very small yeah. amount of sales. That applies to music, that applies to any form of media vertical. It also applies to financial markets, and it applies to this conversation. So before we get into the theory and the application of long tail on financial markets, just talk to me at an extremely high level about why long tails are formed in life? Everywhere you look, you'll see a small amount generates a large amount. Therefore, a large amount generates a small amount. On the eighth day, did God invent long well, tails? Well, no, I think on the eighth day, God invented something called the Pareto Principle and a sort of distribution where 20% of activity generates 80% of the wealth or 20% of the books will actually achieve a sales that are materially greater than any one of the 80% in the long tail. And I think it's just a function of human bandwidth and attention. We don't have time to listen to the 70 million tracks on Spotify or read the 1 million front list book titles. I went to my local bookshop on the weekend and I bought close to a dozen books and that'll last me a couple of months. I can't get through that in, in a day or two. So there simply isn't enough bandwidth in all of our lives to absorb what has become incredible cultural overproduction. And so you're doing good economics. You're imposing you a constraint. You are imposing a constraint. And the lack of constraint is in that cultural production to start with, because we have, through all sorts of technology tools, enabled all of us to become part of the quote-unquote creator economy. And I know we had several podcasts looking back on that creator economy and calling it just complete and utter bullshit. And I'll be proud to <laughs> reflect that, because where are, the, the, that, yeah. where are the, all those writers that are living off of Substack and Patreon? And, and what was that one where you could send videos to get celebrities to do videos for you? Cameo. What happened to those guys? And, yeah. and this idea of the creator economy, that we're all going to be empowered to be creators and we just walk down the streets bunging digital fibers and tenors in all sorts of people's directions month after month, it just didn't happen. So that long tail just is, has become far too long to sustain. And that's why CNBC does not have time to talk about all the stocks in the S&P 500. They only focus on the largest five or 10 or 20 or 30 of them and a few of the big sectors that everybody is intimately familiar with, which is why you hear them talking about retail stocks and Starbucks and Nike, why you hear them talking about Exxon and BP and Shell, because so many people go to the gas pumps or hear them talking about car companies, because they have to appeal to their audience as well. And they have to talk about the stocks that are large enough that matter to everyone's portfolios and that everybody has a personal relationship with. You can only imagine people's personal relationship with flying when you saw that story about the Boeing jet that had the door that blew out. And all of a sudden, Boeing stock takes a nosedive and everybody's paying attention to Boeing stock in a way that they hadn't for years. I love it. When you impose constraint of attention or scarce attention, then you can tease out the supply and demand factors that create long tails. 
But I do want to take you to task on beating up on Cameo because after giving a lecture to UCLA, I got a Cameo from America's greatest sports athlete, Randall Cunningham, which meant the world to me. So I want to give some love Look, to Cameo I, I, right Cameo is, a, Cameo is a delightful service, but I have to ask you the question which you can relay to Cameo and see if they come back with an answer for it. Are people making a living off of Cameo or is it just some nice pocket change no. for out-of-work actors, washed up sports it's a, stars? It's a vanity like gig. It's a vanity gig. But you don't call Randall Cunningham washed up. He, he was when he was nice. playing and now he's doing something <laughs> for fun and to get a little extra cash. I got it. Right. Now let's go from theory to the applied. When you were on stage at the Financial Times Weekend Festival, to the right of you mm-hmm. was James Anderson, who led Bailey Gifford for decades, a bit of a Warren Buffett of the UK-European fund manager industry. And you were both weaving around this topic of the concentration of wealth in capital markets. Oh, I wasn't weaving, Will. I was not weaving. (laughs) You were slaying. So he cited an academic called Hendrik Bessenbinder, forgive my pronunciation. I'm just wondering whether is that academic and his work on the concentration of wealth in stock markets, is that news to you? Are you familiar with that? And who else should our audience be aware of when it comes to the sort of deep thinkers in this space which explain how such a few number of companies generate such a huge amount of wealth creation. Yeah, look, I'm not intimately familiar with all the academic literature on, on on market and portfolio concentration. There are, as with academics and especially economists, they seem to have at least three hands because it's on one hand, on the other, and on another. So for everyone who tells you should pick super stocks. That was a big thing back in the 90s when I started in the city. It was super stocks. There's only a few stocks that really matter and picking those baggers. That was, sorry, that was after the nifty after 50, the nifty is that 50, right? After the trons. <laughs> those super stocks were the ones that mattered. And then, of course, the pendulum swung back to modern portfolio theory, which is diversify your assets. You have to have some energy plays and some utilities and yield stocks and some pharmaceutical companies and some biotech companies because they're the ones that could be 10 baggers and discover the next cure for cancer or whatever. And you had to have technology stocks, but they had to be balanced with retail stocks because the consumer was going to be a consistent spender on food or clothing, but they may go through product cycles in tech and so companies can fall in and out of favor. And again, I think there are so many overlays to the market that to pick one style of portfolio theory I definitely am very aware of, and we have as many clients of ours who are highly concentrated portfolios. They will pick 20 or 30 or even 10 stocks globally. They will know those companies intimately. They will know their competitive environments, and they will say, these few companies are all we want to invest in. For every one of those, there are broadly diversified mutual funds that have energy portfolios and pharmaceutical funds and tech funds and retail consumer funds and financials funds, they will all be looking to play different segments of the market. And then you have portfolio managers who have to change their weightings on those. It may be at a certain point that some sectors are so beaten up, they're offering much greater return potential than the sectors that have soared the highest, more like Icarus close to the sun. So I don't think there is Mm -hmm. one clear academic theory. I can tell you that for every theory you could find about concentration in market portfolios, you can find others that will tell you over the long term, it pays to be more diversified and vice versa. And every fund is trying to burnish its performance to make sure it looks like it's in the top quartile of funds you can choose from. So let's put the academics back on a dusty shelf and turn to a metaphor now. 
And when I hear analysts talk about the big US tech stocks, they often talk about castles mm -hmm. and moats. They look for castles who are building moats. That is, big companies who become harder and harder to chase, to catch up with. And that way, the stock becomes safer and safer. And that is a nice explanation about why you get long tails developing in markets. Do you agree with the castles and moats very visual metaphor? Or does it make you cringe? So a lot of this thinking about castles and moats came out of the famous Silicon Valley notion of crossing the chasm, of, of the gap between someone who had a brilliant idea and actually taking that idea and executing it in practice. And one of the beautiful things about tech is there are always oodles of amazing ideas, but then they get whittled down and whittled down to see which ones are commercial. First of all, which ones are viable? Can they work? Which ones are commercial? Will they make money? And then there may be eight or 10 companies in a space that are all pursuing the same commercial, potentially money-making idea, but there may only be space for two or three of them. And if you look at all sorts of sectors around the world, which have been long in the tooth, whether it's power generation or medical equipment or network infrastructure for telecom networks or so many other areas, you find that you get the market down to about three or maybe four competitors that's a stable oligopoly. Sometimes they'll be very regionally focused. So one will be, a, for example, Alstom and Siemens in the US, in, in Europe and GE in the US, they're leaders in power generation, or there might be one or two large companies that make train infrastructure or semiconductor capital processing capital equipment for making semiconductors. And there's just not enough space in the market for a few of them. Now, the idea of a moat is where you have a chasm that's wide enough that it's almost impossible for your competitor to leap over it and be on the same turf as you, right? Where you create a gap yeah, either it. by the number of inventions you have or the patents you've put together on those inventions and the royalties you want to charge for using those patents. Only you can cross that right. chasm. Only you're or only You're on one road. side of the chasm and everybody else has to leap across it. Now, that moat can be a soft factor like brand preference or just the muscle memory of, uh, of using a certain service. I would argue that a company like Google has put itself in the position where for your kids to search for a piece of information on, online is to Google it. And it's become a verb in society. And that, that sort of notion that you embed yourself so deeply that your competitors can't displace you However much someone might invent a more efficient, ad-free search engine, it's very difficult to overcome that moat of the brand power that a company like Google has built around a very simple service like search. And at the castle-wise, I'd say, look, when I stood up on the stage at the FT Weekend Festival, I started out by trying to get the audience to understand that when you look at these five big tech companies, you're looking at $1.6 trillion of revenue $300 billion of operating profit and cash flow, $160 or $180 billion of capital investment, and $240 billion of R&D. You have never seen castles to the sky built at this scale before. You've never had this kind of concentration of economic wealth at the top of the market before, going all the way back to Standard Oil and the trust busters in the U.S. in the early part of the 20th century. So... And that's an absolute and relative statement. We're talking about in history, what we're looking at now is completely Correct. And you've never also, 
had the market concentration in a handful of stocks that last year were literally all of the performance of the U.S. market. And at one point, Apple's close to $3 trillion market cap was greater than the entire Russell 2000 small and mid-cap index. So no, Apple was worth more than 2,000 other stocks that were small and mid-cap companies. <laughs> and it just shows that there, there are many factors going into that at the fact that you can trade in and out of Apple stock with at any size at any given time because there's enormous liquidity, because it's a household name, it's perceived as very safe. The ecosystem lock-in, all of those things support well, Apple as well as Warren Buffett owning a huge chunk of it, whereas a lot of these small and mid-cap stocks oblige investors to do the research, to understand the backdrop, to understand the managements, and they just aren't able to attract the kind of investment capital that an Apple is. So it just shows you we've never had that kind of divergence before where the entire small and mid-cap index is worth less than one stock in the market. Well, I always remember a lesson I learned my first trip to San Francisco where a Valley investor said to me, out here we call Apple a tracker fund. I was just, was he wrong? And, and, and there are plenty of people, certainly a cousin of mine I know well, who was given some Apple shares on her 18th birthday, and she's now in her mid-30s with two kids, and he's, she's just hung on to them and very happy and probably can't sell them because of the tax liability that she would have. But that's a lot of people feel that way about a stock that goes up over a long period of time, which as on in the market tends to be the best way to make money. Some nice Richard Kramer philosophy there. All right, last thing before we get to the break, just real quickly, I'm going to put you on the spot here. You talked about the Magnificent mm -hmm. Seven. If we were to wake up in the morning of 2030, mm -hmm. let's jump forward a good six years, would it still be seven and would it still be the same seven? Uh, what look, do you think? Undoubtedly, it'll be a different seven. Look, we've had these big five tech companies striding the market like colossi for many years. And indeed, Scott Galloway was wrote a whole book about the need to break them up. But I guess since they're not getting broken up, they're still making tremendous profits and Scott's happy to invest in them. And again, going back to the key stocks back in the last dot-com bubble, it were names like Qualcomm and Cisco, and they're still around. They're just not nearly as big and powerful as they were back then. Cisco was the making the equipment that was at the heart of the internet, but Did, making the equipment that didn't work. Often didn't work, and clearly they made a lot of acquisitions, and they had a mercurial CEO for a long period of time. He's handed the reins over to someone else who's taken the company a different direction. Qualcomm, same sort of thing. They were there at the heart of the 2G, 3G, 4G, 5G, but that cellular modem at the heart of technology became less and less important because we're spending more time on Wi-Fi. The modem itself, the cellular connectivity became less important in the device itself compared to, for example, these giant pancake-sized displays that the phones seem to have these days. So the ability of those companies, and of course, another one was research in motion, right? BlackBerry, and that disappeared from the scene altogether. So there's always scope for disruption and for the leadership to change. It can change because companies lose their way. It can change because the market shifts attention to something else. I think these companies are all incredibly well-managed and very cognizant of the risks. That doesn't mean they're always going to be in a position to forestall them. And you can see with for example, Microsoft buying Activision, a video game maker for close to $70 billion, you can see that they understand that they need to develop other strings to the bow, if you will, or put other arrows in their quiver and diversify. 
And clearly M&A, given the regulatory scrutiny these companies are under, is not something that's broadly been available to them. So Richard, you've given us the lay of the land. That land feels very lopsided. In part two, I want to go a little deeper and understand the investment thesis that you should just back this big tech and go do your gardening. We'll be back in a moment. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Bubble Trouble. We're here and we're discussing big U.S. tech. And I'm going to get into the geographic aspect of that because we're not discussing big European tech, which is something I really want to probe Richard on. But before that, let's just go back to the essence of what created this conversation. For all the financial wizardry, the PhDs, the MBAs, the textbooks, the ideas, the concepts, the analyst notes, you could drown yourself in. Is there another way which is simply load up on big US tech and go do your gardening and everything will be just fine? This is like passive active. I'll control my decisions, not the fund manager. But passively, if I know that everyone else is thinking the same thing, you know, a self-fulfilling prophecy kicks in and we all just do exactly that. You can look at the cash reserves that you mentioned in part one of these companies. The cash reserves Mm -hmm. are huge. That means they're a great store of value. If the stock goes down, they'll just buy it back up. It's like an insurance policy. Is it that simple that in the current climate of so many known unknowns, so much geopolitical risk. You know what? Don't grow gray hair. It's not going to happen to me. Um, don't grow gray hair. Just load up on big US tech and be done with it. If I use a rugby analogy. Give me a reason why I can't award this try. You give me a reason why I shouldn't just do that with my portfolio. So, again, um, modern portfolio theory will advise you against just loading up on a few big stocks. Um, it suggests that you should diversify, that tech can fall out of favor, that these companies, as we, as I mentioned before, Tesla's down 28% since the start of the year. And, and you know, there's a lot of extraneous factors that could constrain companies like Tesla or, or a company like Apple that has 70% of its sales in China. So modern portfolio theory will tell you, don't do that. Uh, I think there's always the exception that proves the rule. And again, this sort of concentration of attention on tech and tech's role in society has amplified the the valuations of these companies, certainly because they've moved at least one, if not several standard deviations out of line with what you would normally expect to pay for these sort of companies. Now, 
what you might be missing by saying, I'm just going to load up on big tech and go away, is that you have other sectors of the economy that peak to trough will have huge cyclical swings. There are a range of cyclical industries from energy to chemicals to retail that will, will have swings and roundabouts and peak to trough. They may see better performance than those tech stocks over time. So it depends on how much you're willing to invest your time and attention <laughs> in looking for alternatives. Certainly the best idea for any retail investor that doesn't want to do that stock selection is to pick a relatively low cost ETF or tech fund and let someone else do the stock picking for you. I hear it. I hear it. And those other stocks, when you look elsewhere, if you think about farmer, last week I was in Denmark, found myself in a hotel with 300 top executives <laughs> of Novo Nordisk and learned on the day of their earnings call, we had breakfast with them and they said, we're now worth more than the GDP yep. of Denmark. And, and I'll tell you, Novo Nordisk, uh, it has been one of my largest stock positions for a very long time. It's been a phenomenal story. It's riding a wave of these anti-obesity drugs right now, which are another, worth another several podcasts to talk about them and whether it's a bubble or whether it's going to change society. But um, it's, it's a phenomenal success story and it's an incredibly well-managed company run actually and owned or controlled by a foundation. It's not a public company and just make as uh -huh. much money as you can and cut away. <laughs> it's actually controlled by a foundation that is supposed to do good. And, uh, you know, Nova Nordisk has been wow. phenomenal success, become the largest stock in Europe. So here in Europe, we don't have one of those big tech companies. We have instead one of the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world and the largest luxury goods company in the world, which is LVMH, uh, sort of astride the stock market. That foundation sounds really interesting in terms of like corporate objectives and incentives. You, you show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. Greatest lesson in business. Um, want to go back a little bit. Uh, Jesse Eisenhower, somebody who openly declared that he threw some Frisbee with oh, you yeah. back at college and his book, The Chicken Shit Club, which is, it comes to the debate about should you break up big tech? I think it gets a little bit passe because we're all in it. The regulators hold these stocks. The consumers hold these stocks. Who would want to damage the prospects of these stocks? Is there something to be said there in terms of why it's too big to break up as opposed to too big to fail? Or as I always like to remember, a lobbyist saying to me is like, Will, one thing you need to understand about Washington politics, we've all got mortgages and we're all going to pay those mortgages with our stock portfolios. I think it all kind of comes full circle in terms of when you're that big and everyone's got skin in your game, it makes you even bigger. One thing you can say about the market is that success breeds success. And there are a whole class of investors who are simply buying stocks that went up. So when you see a phenomenal performance of a company like NVIDIA, which was up several hundred percent last year, there's a lot of people that'll pile in following the momentum. And again, when in a finite market, which the boundaries of the market in terms of the number of stocks listed in that you can invest in at any given time is relatively finite. There are a few that are doing better than all the others. They will naturally attract that extra attention. And that's why the, the product announcements or earnings calls of these big tech companies are front page news on the mainstream media. The theater. Yeah, theater. it's a theater of of wealth creation that 
is you know everybody is going to have FOMO. Hey, did you own Nvidia? Boy, I didn't, but I owned AMD, and you know everybody wants to find the next big thing. So it becomes for a certain segment of the population, because remember, there's a tiny fraction of of Americans or or Brits or whoever that directly own stocks themselves, as opposed to owning funds or pension funds. <laughs> but there is a theater of attention on those names that becomes a, 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 a cultural conversation. So we were talking here about big tech, and I wanted to stress at the very beginning, it's big US tech. People around the world are not looking at Europe for these monster-sized companies. They're looking at America. Give me, how do you ease into this? Why the geographic disparity is, I guess, what I'm thinking. I mean, what is it with Europe which hasn't produced anything, even a fraction of the size of any of these big seven companies? Well, you know, Europe does have a few champions. It has the ASMLs and and the SAPs and and some semiconductor companies like NXP and Infineon and, and ST Micro. But quite simply, the U.S. Internet companies have ruled the roost. They have created the biggest brands. They possibly benefited from a more benign regulatory environment with less data protection and less privacy law. And they have aggressively expanded to become global platform companies much faster than the European counterparts did. Also, I would say Europe was willing, in many cases, to sell some of its crown jewels. We had a long discussion at the FT Weekend Festival about whether or not the UK should have allowed Arm, its leading semiconductor company, to be sold to the Chinese. And then it's eventually been relisted, but with a tiny free float and relisted in the States. You know, Europe was willing to put its companies on sale in a way that the US was happy to take advantage of because of its much larger and deeper capital markets. And if you look at most other countries, they tend to have maybe a couple of those big national champion tech companies, but not many. So you're not going to have dozens and dozens. And Europe really has just lost the plot in terms of supporting those fledgling companies and allowing them to grow in, in, a, in a large single market of 400 million people into global competitors. That's a nice top-down answer to the question. If I can throw some bottom-up logic before we get to smoke signals there. One is just how we work, and two is just the lay of the land that Europe offers a promising startup. But on how we work, I've just finished a book, What Matters, by John Doerr, who talks about objectives and key results, OKRs. Fantastically written book, beautifully edited, and goes back to Andy Grove and Intel, perhaps the founding father of Valley. Is there something to be said about just... And I, this involves some unfortunate generalizations, but I genuinely mean this. Is there something to be said about how Americans work, which creates these huge companies? The fact that failure is not frowned upon the way it is frowned upon on this side of the pond. The fact that there's these deep capital markets willing to take more of a bet, more of a gamble to help you get along. Is, is, is there something just on the office floor which affects the success? You know, I've thought about that a lot. And one of the things I was discussing with a London Business School professor today about who, who's just moved six years ago to, to LBS from the US, Canadian guy, we talked about how, you know, and I mentioned this on the Prof G podcast for Scott Galloway that I, I, I was a guest on. In America, the first question you get asked wherever you go is, what do you do? Which is shorthand for how much money do you make or how much are you worth? Everyone's on the bread Everyone game. Everyone is Everyone's all about- on the bread game. It's a it's transactional a very transactional. Thing. And in Europe, hey, you know, you ask someone, where are you from? And 
you know, if you say, uh, Will, you say from Scotland, well, you know, then the next question will be trying to listen to your accent. Are you from Glasgow, from Edinburgh, from Aberdeen, from which bit of Scotland, the Highlands? And, and you really end up... No, the next question is, where's right, your translator? The, if you're from Glasgow, for sure. And, it, you know, there is a cultural anchoring in Europe to a place and to the, the values of that place that is clearly not there in America. And it's been replaced by the value of, can you, can you succeed? Can you make money? with money being the main determinant of that success. So, you know, it is super ironic that you have all of these Silicon Valley companies bringing us social media and things to ever more distract us and, and create ADHD pandemics among our youth. But, you know, of course, they're all practicing mindfulness mm -hmm. and, and wanting us to, to center ourselves <laughs> and, and having their, their, um, their kombucha, you know, on tap at the cafeteria, um, you know, and so, you know, they're all about wellness. So, you know, there is an irony there. I, I don't think it's, I don't buy this at all. I simply do not buy this notion that you're branded a failure for life in Europe if you have a startup and it doesn't work out. I think that's nonsense. In the same way as Right. The American dream success story of the these few giant tech companies that have become integral to our everyday lives, you miss the hundreds of other companies that they've either bought or crushed out of competition. <laughs> and maybe Europe just has simply too benign a regulatory environment relative to the U.S. and which allows competition red in tooth and claw, and that's allowed these giant companies to evolve. But you don't look at kombucha metrics when you're investing in no, European you tech. Now, <laughs> oh, the other thing I just want to choke off before we start smoking you out is just the lay of the land. Like it is the United States. If you've got a good idea in San Diego and that idea can scale, it scales to 348 million people, the vast majority of which carry a smartphone, the vast majority of which can download an app in 10, language. 15, 20 seconds. In Europe, if you have a smart idea in Lisbon, Portugal or Athens, Greece, you've got a smart idea in a country of 5 million or 12 million or 20 million people. And, you know, if you have a good idea in Spain, you have to register your company in each province of Spain. And there's just too many borders. Is it the fact that Europe isn't a United States of Europe? Is that well, the problem? I think it's, I would draw the map boundaries far wider than that. So, you know, everybody was scratching their heads when Mark Zuckerberg decided to spend 20 billion or whatever it was buying WhatsApp. But he obviously saw the, borderless person-to-person -person messaging that his then Chinese girlfriend who ended up becoming his wife was using with WeChat, with Weixin from Tencent, and realized that, hey, if we have one digital messaging app where you can send a message to anybody in the world at literally zero marginal cost, um, it's an incredibly powerful social graph. And I remember the, the, the profit warning for the Dutch telco KPN at the time that their SMS business, because they were charging a huge per message fee, <laughs> was all of a sudden disappearing overnight because this app had come along and said, if you have data, you can send a, a message for nothing. We can make messaging free. And the They're idea was that the, the US companies at least recognized that the ultimate endpoint of scale would be global. So if your kids are in Tanzania or Tunisia or any other country or Togo or any other country that begins with a T, it doesn't matter because you can still WhatsApp them. As long as they have data and they have an, they have a, an account, 
you can reach them. And they understood that that scale is ultimately global, maybe with a few exceptions like uh, the China market that closed themselves off. But but that scale is global. And unfortunately, as you say, a lot of European businesses were still developing their apps or their services for a highly specific local market. It's not to say that specific local tastes in Portugal or Greece or Spain or the Netherlands aren't really important to be catered to. But these sort of platform companies came along and realized, as Apple did brilliantly, if we give an excellent product and make one variant of it for the world, everybody will want an excellent product. We don't need to make product variants for every different country. Now I hear it loud and clear. Right, let's wrap it up. Been a great conversation, but give me some smoke signals. And you know how to describe smoke signals. You've done it on about 100 episodes, but describing it back to you, sir. If you heard somebody say, all I've done is slap my money into big tech and I'm off to do my gardening, what are the sort of things that would make you a little bit worried about that strategy? What sort of headlines or interpretations of the market make you concerned? Again, as much of these magnificent seven stocks have performed incredibly well, and they've been the ones who've been repeatedly mentioned in all the hype around AI that we've had so many podcasts about, and, 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 you know, we have to recognize that these companies are ultimately fallible, as are all companies. And if you look back at the four horsemen or the companies that were, were leading the market in the last decades, not all of them made it through. You see Tesla right now, which is a stock I can talk a bit more freely about because we don't cover it. The electric vehicle market is incredibly crowded. So my first smoke signal would be to say, don't assume that past performance is going to be a, an indicator of, of future profits, that the ability of these companies to fall like Icarus because they've so- soared too close to the sun is as intact as the ability to have their stocks rocket upwards. And you know that's not to say that when you see Apple down 2 or 3% this year, you shouldn't be happy that it went up 48% last year, but you can't expect that compounding to happen every year in perpetuity unless you're willing to wait out a long duration period of time. So absolutely, if you want to load up on tech companies and own them for decades, that's likely to be a winning strategy. But it's very difficult to, to say who the winners this year will be just based on looking back and saying who were the winners last year. To past performance, or to summarize in a matter of words, you know a stock can half, so the question you've got to ask is, can it double? And, and again, when these companies have gone up so much and everybody's paid so much attention to them, the natural thing for people to do will be to look for the next big thing. And so it may be difficult for them to replicate the stellar performance that they had last year, uh, and the market may be moving on and saying, well, what's another theme we should be playing or thinking about for 2024 or beyond? Well, it's been a great conversation. And if I can just take stock to put a wrap around it and pin it up, but it's just simply for me, you've beautifully laid out the background, the lay of the land of the market, just how big in historical terms, I think it's fascinating how big these companies are in terms of their concentration of wealth and their concentration of wealth creation. But I think the most interesting thing for me is when you alluded to the attention economy, the constraint of attention. Why do we have these long tail distributions? Because we've only got so much time. We as consumers, the editor of CNBC, the journalist at the Financial Times, we only have so much time to cover so few companies. And the few that get in get an extra bounce. And I just wonder whether that's 
the stone that we've turned over in this conversation, which is really, really telling. If, you know, the percentage of headlines that relate to the Magnificent Seven dominates 80% of the coverage in the media, perhaps there's another driver which is going to keep these stocks afloat for longer. Which makes me think, even for all the cautionary notes, it would do no harm just to load up on this stuff and go back and do the gardening. Rich Kramer, thank you for joining us on Bubble Trouble. It's been a great conversation. And we're going to be back next week with more pricks, bursting bubbles, first and foremost. Thank you for your time. If you are new to Bubble Trouble, we hope you'll follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share it on your socials. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Newsom, Jesse Baker, and Julia Nett at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. Until next time, from my co-host Richard Kramer, I'm Will Page. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.